I'm TL, and I'll be your host for the next hour. Each week at Mass, we say those words, I believe, but our belief has implications on the way we live our life the rest of the week. We explore those implications together right here on Outside the Walls. What does it mean to follow Jesus, to be a disciple? This is probably the central implication of our faith, because if we believe, as we say we do, that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father, he is of the same essence. He shares the same essence with God the Father. Therefore, he is God. If we believe that Jesus is divine, and we believe that the incarnation of Jesus, of God becoming man, was for the purpose of putting us back in relationship with God, then generally uh, it would stand to reason that we want to enter into that relationship, that we, we who are going to Mass, we who are participating in the sacraments, desire uh, to be in relationship with God. Now, look around uh, at the relationships that are in your life. Every relationship requires an investment of, of time, of um, a little bit of yourself, more than just showing up and being present, but being vulnerable and, and offering the gift of yourself to that other person. Uh, these are the things that we instinctively know from the relationships that are around us, um, but sometimes it doesn't make its way all the way over to our relationship with God. We think, okay, well, I'm I'm Catholic. I was baptized. I go to Mass uh, on the days that I'm supposed to. I make sure that my my kids are baptized. I send them to RE. I, I you know, I'm a good Catholic. Okay, but what does that look like in terms of following Christ? Uh, you, you look at the lives of the disciples, and yes, they. They went to synagogue with him. They did those things that were of, uh, of religious ritual and obligation. Um, and, and I use those in a positive term. And, and yet they still, every day for three years, walked where Jesus walked, ate with Jesus, talked with Jesus, did the things that Jesus did, and these were his disciples, a lot of times we think of the twelve, and we're like, "Oh, well, you know, those are those are the uh, those are the big guns. They're on the select team." <laughs> but at the same time, uh, the twelve disciples, uh, at when they started, they were just disciples. They made mistakes. They misunderstood. They um, they, <laughs> they keep coming back to this miracle of the uh, of the multiplication of the loaves, uh, and you see this in a couple of places. Um, first of all, this this miracles in all of four of the gospels, and every time it's, it strikes me as so funny because it's not like Jesus prayed and all of a sudden all the bread was there. Uh, Jesus blessed it and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, "Now you distribute it." And so they're looking at just the same amount that they started with. It wasn't until they acted in obedience that they saw the miracle take place. The as they handed it out, there was still enough, and it went out, and then there were 12 baskets full or seven baskets full, depending on which gospel you're looking at. Uh, but but here's the thing. It was through their obedience that uh, that the miracle happened. You know, it's not just looking at it and saying, oh, well, look, Jesus prayed, and now there's a million baskets. We can hand it out. 
Now, there's this this step of faith that has to be taken that the one who told us to do the work is going to provide for the work to be done. So when he says to us uh, to clothe the naked and to feed the hungry and to give drink to the thirsty and to visit the prisoner, we may look at the resources that we have in front of us that have been uh, blessed and broken by Christ and say, oh, there's... You know, I don't know that I, can you do something else because we're we're not yet here. I'm looking at it and we're still left with my limited resources of of, of uh, you know five five loaves and two fish. Can can uh, can you divine this a little bit more so that I feel more comfortable going out and obeying what you said? We say that he's divine and that he is God and that we love him. He says, if you love me. You'll obey my commands. He says, if anyone would come after me and be my disciple, let him take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. Uh, those are uncomfortable words because look at this. I mean, if you want to follow me, you have to take up the instrument of your own execution, that thing that you think is going to be the absolute end of you. Uh, take that and carry it with you everywhere you go. And while you're at it, uh, all of those things that you prefer and that you like, uh, go ahead and deny yourself those things, uh, and then and then you can follow after me. These are uncomfortable words, and yet there is fulfillment found in the in the obedience of those words. And maybe you don't feel still like you're one of the twelve. I I, I just don't know that I'm ever going to be that level. Well, there's more to discipleship than just being one of the 12. In fact, we're going to hear today, and we'll hear in tomorrow's gospel, the story of the 72 uh, that were followers of Jesus. They loved Jesus. They listened to the things that he said. They might even follow him from town to town. Uh, But they were also close enough in his orbit that they wanted to do the work of the kingdom. And they loved God as revealed to them in Jesus Christ. And the message of the kingdom of God that was coming among them resonated with them. Each of us, if we don't find ourselves in the picture of the 12, each of us can find ourselves in this picture of the 72. And there's a very specific role for us as the 72 Uh, these 72 disciples that were sent out, appointed by Jesus and sent out for a specific purpose. And each of us can do at least, at least what they did. And that's what we're going to talk about uh, later in the show as we talk with Dr. Tamara Fromm, who's the Director of Discipleship with the Catholic Biblical School of Michigan. We're going to be exploring the new evangelization today talking a little bit about the pastoral letter from Detroit, Unleash the Gospel. You can find that at unleashthegospel.org. We're also going to be looking at reaching the disaffiliated. There's much more to come after this. Join the conversation over on social media, facebook.com slash stepoutsidethewalls. On Twitter, the handle's at Outside the Walls. Come be a part of that conversation. And this conversation will return right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with T.L. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL. 
So glad to be with you today. We're talking uh, about evangelism and, and, and discipleship and being a witness. Uh, later on the show, we're going to be talking about the reading from tomorrow's gospel, where, among other things, Jesus says uh, the, the fields are full and wide unto harvest. Pray that, but the laborers are few. Pray that the Lord of the harvest would send laborers. Uh, and a lot of times we, we like to think that we're praying that God would send someone else to come and be the laborer, right? But but the truth of the matter is God doesn't let anyone sit on the sidelines. Uh, this is immediately preceded by Jesus sending out 72. These aren't the 12. These are the people who are sitting on the sidelines. So if you feel like you're on the sidelines and not part of the elite team, this is specifically for you. Sharing the faith is not a professional engagement. Uh, it happens by people who are right within the family. People who are friends and family are the ones who make the greatest difference. And that's according to some research recently from Dr. Tamara, Dr. Tamara Fromm, who's the director of discipleship uh, for a Catholic biblical school of Michigan, who's taught at Sacred Heart Major Seminary in Detroit. Uh, and she joins us today. Dr. Fromm, thank you for being with us. Thank you, TL, for having me on your program. I appreciate this opportunity. You know, if you if you watch the news uh, or pay too much attention to what's going on in the uh, you know the the secular realm of life, you hear Detroit and you, you think of uh, the the all the big car companies that are uh, no longer in their prime, and you think of factories that are closed, and you think of uh, maybe the Flint water crisis, and you think of all of these crises. Uh, when I think of Michigan, when I think of Detroit, uh, I think of the Unleash the Gospel pastoral letter that was released a couple of years ago. And I see all of these fantastically amazing things that are going on in the archdiocese with regard to uh, meeting the the crises and meeting the um, maybe the suffering that's in their area with the joy of the gospel. And you're, you're right in the kind of the ground zero of this huge evangelization effort. Talk about how that uh, and your your location has really kind of shaped your life, specifically in regard to your doctoral work. And then let's move from there into what that work is. Okay. Well, great. Um, the Archbishop, uh, really, the Archbishop Alan Vigneron has really had this wonderful vision and um, for the church based on a, a 2016 synod with a whole um, archdiocese, laity and clergy. And um, he's really tried to, to push forth this vision with all the parishes, moving them from kind of a maintenance uh, mode toward a mission mode, uh, realizing that uh, uh, we cannot wait for people to come to us anymore. We need to go out, just as you, you mentioned about tomorrow's gospel, that, that Jesus send, sends us forth. He calls us to go out of our, our um, kind of uh, white picket fences and to engage the, um, uh, the generation, to engage the culture, um, to meet people where they are. And because people are not coming to church, um, we need to go out to meet them first and invite them. And I think what, uh, what kind of spurred me on there in terms of uh, the doctoral work. So I started probably about, uh, four or five years ago. Um, and, I'm a convert. Um, I came into the church about uh, almost 20 years ago from Lutheran and then um, I, uh, kind of a quasi-Pentecostal church. 
And um, I always had that in the back of my mind in, in terms of being interested in people's conversion experiences and realizing that everyone has a unique experience in terms of conversion. Um, but the other uh, catalyst for my research was when I was uh, working on my master's in uh, Sacred Heart Major Seminary is I had taken an evangelization class with Dr. Ralph Martin. And um, uh, one of the papers I wrote was on this, this Protestant missionary, a Baptist minister that goes to uh, Burma uh, in the 1800s, uh, now, now Myanmar. And he does... And, you know, when we think about uh, Baptist evangelists, we kind of think of someone who's sort of in your face and, you know, you need to get saved and, and really preaching hard the kerygma. And, um, uh, but this was not this Baptist minister's uh, approach. Rather, he kind of hung out with the people. He went down into the markets and he just started to engage them in conversation. And uh, people became curious. And it was through that those that conversation, the trust, the relationship building, that he was able to eventually uh, uh, invite them to his church. And I started to think about, out of this Unleash the Gospel context, that I said, hmm, you know, things are changing in this world. And it was around that time that uh, the, the, I think it was the, the 2014 Pew study came out that started talking about uh, about 30 to 33% of, of the population was classified as nuns or having no religious affiliation. And I said, wow, um, something's going on. And I think we need to make a shift in terms of our paradigm. How do we reach out to others? It's not the same way that we've done it over the past 40 or 50 or even 20 years. Mm -hmm. And so that's what kind of spurred me on to say, all right, I want to look at, I want to interview some young people, some so-called millennials um, who did not grow up with anything and say, what was it that, that moved you to check out the Catholic church? And I think uh, my findings were not super surprising to me, but at the same time, I think uh, it's something that needs to get out there because it, it may radically change the way we look at uh, uh, the, the whole spectrum of evangelization. If you're just joining us today, we're talking with Dr. Tamara from from the, uh, the Bi Catholic Biblical School of Michigan. And so you talk about we need to have a different paradigm for evangelization. At the same time, I think that sometimes we get so caught up with the, the new um, that we, we miss out on the, the fact that this is really not a new way of doing things. I mean, you go back all the way to Evangelion Nutiandi from Pope Paul VI, St. Pope Paul VI, uh, and in number 41 there he says, um, without repeating everything we've said, uh, modern man listens more willingly to witnesses than to teachers. And if he does listen to teachers, it's because they are witnesses. And we have this idea that, um, and perhaps it's from our popular culture or from uh, our common conception of what it means to be an evangelist, just as you mentioned before, uh, that you've got to go out with a bullhorn, stand on the corner, and uh, and tell people that if they don't repent, they're going to hell. We've got this almost uh, uh, Jonah mentality for what it means to bring a people to Christ. And, and, of course, this is not the method that 
Christ himself gives us, and this is not the method that the church has been teaching us for some time. Somehow we have to get it through our head that the way that we reach people is by being in relationship with them. Absolutely. I I think that uh, one of the the phrases that's come out uh, very strongly, uh, perhaps in in Pope Francis's uh, tenure, uh, but also from um, St. John Paul II and and Pope Benedict, is the idea of the encounter. Mm -hmm. And I think the word encounter, if we think about that even in a a, a secular context we think well you know i was running down to the grocery store or i was uh, i was driving down the freeway and i encountered this or i count- encountered that it's kind of almost like this unexpected meeting of of someone or something and it, it to me that says something about the fact that sometimes evangelization is ne- is less planned it's less structured it's more being open to where the holy spirit is guiding me in my daily life and just being the face of christ to someone um can sometimes be the antidote to perhaps even a previous negative um perception that somebody might have had about christians or christianity or catholicism um i really think uh it, it's kind of it, the conversion for for millennials or Gen Zs or those from this generation is more experiential rather than coming through the head. Right. You know, I, I think that one of the difficulties is that we have this idea that, uh, I guess, twofold ideas that are competing with one another. One is that we think that uh, evangelization is best left to the experts. And two, we think that our practice of pray, uh, of faith should be private. Uh, and that somehow that our faith is a really internal thing, and so we don't really make way or make room for there to be these encounters that could make the difference in the life of someone else. Absolutely, and I agree with you. We don't need to be, we don't all need to run to seminary. We don't have to all become little theologians or little apologists. It certainly helps to be able to, be able to articulate something about our faith, but perhaps what's even more critical is our own story, our own kind of micro narrative. Um, how, what has God done for me? Um, how can I bring um, my faith into this conversation without being preachy, without being judgmental? Um, because that, I think, that joy of the gospel is what resonates with nuns. It's what resonates with people who are even slightly curious about uh, the, this Christian thing or the Catholics, especially in light of the scandals. Right. You know, a lot of this is just really uh, learning the language, learning the way to, to turn a phrase to be able to say, oh, that's really interesting that that's your your experience. In my experience, this is what I found in my life. Uh, I've been really fulfilled by the practice of say, going to confession because this has been my experience with that. Instead yeah. of saying, you know, well, you have to go to confession, otherwise, you know, you've got mortal sin on your soul and then you can't be reconciled <laughs> with God, which, which is true. Uh, and yet when, when Jesus came... Uh, he said that phrase, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And someone once said to me, uh, he, he's those things because there's a time that, that people are hungering for truth, but there's also a time people won't listen to truth and what they really are hungering for is a way. Yes. Or they're really hungering for an experience of life. And each of these three things, uh, depending on your time and your place and your location, uh, can draw people 
into a relationship with God. Absolutely. Yeah. One of my favorite stories from my research is um, from a young woman. She was probably 23, 24, and she came from a, um, a, a, a single mom, a family with a single mom who was uh, drug addicted and kind of in and out of prison. And uh, she had this opinion based on her grandmother that being a Catholic or being a Christian was all about kind of just sitting by your bed and, and quietly saying a rosary and, and all that. And basically she kind of talked herself out that out of herself that she could not be a Christian because that wasn't her personality. Mm -hmm. And it was only when she gets this new job as a bus driver and she encounters someone who is kind of like her a little rough around the edges got she's got some tattoos she rides a harley and this older woman starts engaging her in just basic conversation um just kind of acknowledging her as a person um challenging her to to see her own dignity um as who she is it starts building that curiosity yeah. and so when that woman finally asked her to, hey, would you be open to going to church with me? She was, she was ready to bite on the invitation. Yeah, and this is really all it takes is investing in people's lives, not trying to win an argument or get a point, but win a person. We're talking today with Dr. Tamara Frum, the Director of Discipleship at the Catholic Biblical School of Michigan. Join the conversation online, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at Outside the Walls. There's much more to come right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL. One of the implications of our belief that Jesus is the Son of God, uh, and that we have to do what he says because, you know, he's God. Uh, one of the implications of that is he said, go into all the world and make disciples, right? Go out and, and share this that you have received. Freely we have received, so freely we must give. Uh, and so we're talking about the really the best practices for evangelization in our pluralistic, secularized culture. And to have this discussion, we're talking with Dr. Tamara Frum, who's the Director of Discipleship at the Catholic Biblical School of Michigan. Uh, Tamara, thank you for being with us again today. Thank you again. So one of the things that, um, that my listeners will be really familiar with, because I say it uh, a little bit too often, is that... Um, the scripture says that we need to always be ready with an answer for the hope that's within us. So there's predicated this understanding that there's going to be a question asked. And so the first step in evangelization is to live a questionable life. And that's kind of a joke, but <laughs> live, live, a like live, live a life that's going to, uh, to really spur someone's question. And we can't do that if we are um, just, living our faith as privately as possible. It doesn't mean that we have to go out and, you know, broadcast it all over the place, but just let let the uh, the Catholic flag of weirdness fly just a little <laughs> bit 
so that uh, so that people ask the questions. For instance, uh, maybe there's the traveling relic of the uh, the incorrupt heart of St. John Vianney coming through your town. You, you might just post on social media, hey, I'm looking forward to this, because that will engender some questions. And from those questions begin the, the inroads into uh, the the possibility of evangelization before, you know, we think evangelization is the first step, but it's really not. There is a step before evangelization. Can you talk to us a little bit about what that might look like? Sure. Um, TL, one of the the components of my doctoral research was not just the, uh, the interviews with the, the 24 young adult nuns, but it was also looking at something called pre-evangelization. And uh, pre-evangelization, you know, we talk about the new evangelization and how we need to get that word out or that phrase or that concept out more. Um, I think pre-evangelization is kind of looming right on the, on the back end of that because we have this growing number of, of nuns. We have a growing number of duns, people who are done with the church, done with religion, um, that there needs to be uh, a greater emphasis on this pre-evangelization. And I went all the way back to uh, a priest named Alfonso Nebreda in the early 60s. And Alfonso Nebreda, who was uh, doing mission work in, um, in Asia at the time, he learned that um, we need to meet the person where they're at. And I think that's, that's really critical in today's postmodern or post-Christian day is um, rather than coming armed and dangerous with, with the gospel already with full guns blaring, is we simply meet the person where he or she is. And, and I like what you said, uh, do we, we need to have lives of, of, question, of, of questions, um, a life that, that, that spurs on curiosity, even if it seems like you say a little bit weird. We don't have to be flying flags of weirdness or, or, or in your face Jesus stuff, mm-hmm. but it's people people will see and they certainly do see the um, the young adult nuns that I interviewed definitely noticed a difference in terms of the lifestyles of, uh, of their in-laws of um, uh, of their friends who were Catholic and it is because of that that uh, that intrigue that kind of drew them in they started to say what is it about this person what is it about this family that how they treat each other i've never been treated like this before yeah and and i would l- let's go to this point as well um evangelization is always a multifaceted approach we can't just focus on on those that are the nuns uh and and ignore everything else because um the nuns got to be there and of course by saying nuns we're talking about those who when asked their religious affiliation click the box that says none uh these these people got there because uh in large part for not not without exception but in large part their experience of their grandparents faith or their parents faith was either not passed down or not explained it's just, oh, well, we go to Mass because we go to Mass and that's what we do. And so if all we do is focus on getting people who are outside the church and bringing them in, and we don't really change the way that we have been doing, whether it be uh, practice of faith at home or the structure for religious education within our churches, uh, if we don't change 
that structure, we're going to just end up creating a new generation of nuns that we have to get later. But best to hit, to hit both approaches at the same time, to evangelize those who are outside the church and to disciple those who are within the church so that they never get to that place. Amen. Amen. I agree with you. Um, some comments I want to share from um, from the study is that, uh, yeah, that's this is a very typical uh, phenomenon occurring. So about half of the young adult nuns that I interviewed uh, were kind of a second generation of non-religious or non-practicing parents. In some cases, when um, the grandparents or the grandmother in particular was, uh, was mentioned, it only took one generation, and certainly these young adults were the second generation, because either the grandparents or the parents did not pass down the faith. And again, you're, you're correct. If we don't kind of stop this going on now, if we don't address this in some way, uh, we're going to have more of these so-called nuns, and it's going to mean something it could mean something vastly different for the way that, that our landscape looks mm -hmm. in, in a couple years. Um, the other thing that I found quite interesting about uh, the research is that parents had basically said to their kids, you know what, I'm not going to push anything on you. Uh, you can make your own decision about what you want to believe. And so I find that, that kind of interesting in, in the sense that, uh, you know, usually if you're a parent, you want to pass on good things, you want to pass on good practices to your kids, you know, whether it's food choices or exercise or, or doing well in school. But yet these parents did not feel the desire to pass on the faith. And obviously that could be because they themselves didn't have it. Well, I think that there's something telling about that. If we think that something is essential and central to life, we pass it on to our children, right? Um, if, if we think that, uh, that, good good hygiene habits uh, of, of brushing their teeth the right way. We think that's important. We teach them how to do that. We take the time to potty train our children because we think it's essential that we don't change their diapers for the rest of our lives. Uh, these are things that uh, we see as central and core to the human experience. Uh, but when we say, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to let my kids maybe go to Sunday school, but we're not going to talk about faith at home and we're and then I'm going to let them make the decision whether to be baptized when they're older or whatever the case may be. What we're saying is twofold. One, that membership in the church is similar to membership in some other uh, extracurricular activity that I might find interesting, but they may not. Uh, mm -hmm. That's that's step one. But then we we're also saying that um, the graces of the sacraments really can't affect uh, children at their age. It really is only an intellectual pursuit and not something that we receive as a grace and as a strengthening from God. And so since, since they can't receive um, Eucharist yet, and since they're not old enough to really understand the homily, we're just going to hold off on baptism and let them decide. Uh, and so we, we deny the centrality of faith and we deny the efficacy of the sacraments. Amen. I completely agree with you, TL. And the other thing I think as you were saying that is, uh, you touched upon something that says if, if we if we deny the efficacy of the sacraments, then we turn we can tend to turn um, this relationship with Christ into only something that that is done in the head or only something that uh, that I it's an it's simply an individual choice. And of course, we know it's an, an individual choice. I need 
to make a, a decision for Christ myself. No one can make that for me. But on the other hand, we are, by not connecting them with a the community, we have this, we're having this growing lacuna of, of, of young people that are growing up without belonging. And I think that's one of the, the key needs you find out or you find with this generation is the need for belonging before they can believe. Mm-hmm. But there's such an absence of belonging. I think of, I'm not a sports person, but to use a sports metaphor, uh, if you're really passionate about a, a sport, then you don't just practice the sport yourself, but when you sit down to watch the game, you'll notice the way that you explain what's going on to the child. Uh, oh, well, you see, he went he went past that line, so that's offsides. Well, you know that. So you're watching the game really at a diminished level for yourself for the sake of your child so that they will become interested in the thing that interests you. And, That's right. and we'll find fulfillment in it. Now, if we do that for something as as inconsequential in the long run as, as watching a, a sports team, not even participating in the sport ourselves, but watching someone else's sports team, someone else play, how much more central would it be for us to do that same thing with our children and say, oh, do you hear those bells? Oh, that's what's happening. This is the moment of the consecration where Christ comes in our midst as the bread and wine disappear and the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ appear. Yeah. Yeah, it's taken away from our focus in the Mass, but it's giving them something that will then help them to appropriate that and to really uh, incarnate the faith in their own lives. Absolutely. I completely agree. It's a little bit of catechesis from the domestic church. We're talking today with Dr. Tamara Fromm, who's the Director of Discipleship with the Catholic Biblical School of Michigan. And I'd never heard of this before uh, before our conversation today. So can you tell us just a little bit about what the Catholic Biblical School is and how someone might connect with it? Yeah, the Catholic Biblical School of Michigan began about 10 years ago uh, with uh, uh, a vision to bring the study of scripture on an undergraduate level to the average lay person in the pew. And over that time, we've, we've graduated uh, uh, over 450 students that go through a four-year kind of course, uh, beginning with the Old Testament and moving through all, all the books through of the Bible. But the real goal is not just to um, fill your head with a bunch of head knowledge and be able to to pronounce all those those difficult names <laughs> in the Bible. Uh, the real goal is to to be able to encounter the God who who created us, who loved us, and reveals Himself through the person of Jesus Christ. And how do we become His disciples? Mm-hmm. So the Scripture becomes the the foundation for that relationship. Um, and what we're doing, we're really excited actually. So um, while we have kind of been geographically confined to Michigan. This fall, we are running online courses in that same program. And uh, the way that that uh, if someone's interested in that, I invite them to go and visit the website. It would be at, actually, it's a separate website. So it's www.inspireddiscipleship.org. Dr. Tamara Frum, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you, T.L. There's more to my conversation with Dr. Tamara Fromm that I didn't have the time to air on today's episode, but it's available to all of those who support the show through Patreon. If you want access to this and other extra segments, simply go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Support the Show link in the top right corner, and look through the different ways that you can join that community of supporters. 
There's much more to come right after this as we dive deep into Scripture and church history, looking at this question of being a disciple. Don't go anywhere. There's much more to come right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with T.L. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. We've been talking today with Dr. Tamara Frum, who is the Director of Discipleship at the, the Catholic Biblical School of Michigan. You can find them by going to cbsmich, M-I-C-H, uh, cbsmich.org, or their online curriculum that she talked about right there at the end, uh, inspireddiscipleship.org. Recently, she posted a five-piece article over on DetroitCatholic.com, which is the Archdiocesan magazine, and uh, was exploring and, and explaining some of her doctoral research on the rise of the nuns, uh, N-O-N-E-S, those who are disaffiliated, and when asked what religion they are, they say none. Uh, and then also talking, you know, a lot of these are people who used to be Catholic, who used to have some Christian tradition. Uh, and have become disenfranchised by what they have experienced or what they've seen, or maybe they just grew away from the church over generations. Uh, and so talking a little bit about what it takes to reach that person, because the strategies for evangelism uh, look different now than they did 20 years ago. But interestingly, they look remarkably similar to what they looked like back in the early church. Uh, back in the church fathers, the, the the tactics, while they are new, what the the language that's necessary, uh, they're new to us, but really they're quite old and they're tried and true. If you missed any part of that conversation or you want to share it with others, uh, all of our episodes are archived over at outsidethewalls.com. Uh, and while you're there, there's actually an extra segment. Dr. Fromm and I continued our conversation and I'd love to share it with you. Uh, it's available to all of those who support the show through Patreon. While you're there at OutsideTheWalls.com, click that link in the top right corner all the way up at the top. It says support the show uh, hyphen Patreon. And click that link, follow through, watch the little video that's there. Look at the different levels and ways that you can support the show. And for as little as $5 a month, we will send you an extra segment of content each and every week. Let's go ahead and turn our attention now to our reading from Scripture and from church history. Uh, this reading today comes from the Gospel of Luke. It's for the readings that you'll hear tomorrow at Mass. This first reading comes from the Gospel of Luke. At that time, the Lord appointed 72 others, whom he sent ahead of him in pairs, to every town and place he intended to visit. He said to them, The harvest is abundant, but the laborers are few. So ask the master of the harvest to send out laborers for his harvest. Go on your way. Behold, I am sending you like lambs among wolves. Carry no money bag, no sack, no sandals, and greet no one along the way. Into whatever house you enter, first say, Peace to this household. If a peaceful person lives there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in the same house and eat and drink what is offered to you, for the laborer deserves his payment. Do not move about from one house to another. 
Whatever town you enter and they welcome you, eat what is set before you. Cure the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God is at hand for you. This reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, and there are a few things that I want to point out today. Jesus is sending them out, and he's giving them final instructions. Anytime we see final instructions, they're generally pretty important. So let's take a look at what Jesus says to the 72, which, as we mentioned earlier, that's us. If you don't feel like you're one of the disciples, one of the 12, well, we at least, at the very least, we who follow Christ fall here in the 72. And so what does he say to them and to us today? Uh, The first off is the harvest is abundant, but the laborers are few. There's no easy path to harvest. There's no mechanization. There's there's no automation. Rather, it's going to take people in the field uh, doing the work, right? There's no magic bullet program that if we just implement this program at our church, everything's going to work out. We're going to have people, they're going to come to us and no problem. No, this harvest, the harvest of souls requires uh, workers in the field. And it's not something that you or I can pull off on our own. They're looking around, they're like, hey, there's 72 of us. That's, we're all right, we're going out, we're doing this thing. And Jesus is saying to them, this harvest is bigger than you know and more than you are capable of on your own. So pray that the Lord will send workers into the harvest. And I would encourage you to make that part of your daily prayer um, because the harvest is everywhere. Pray that the Lord of the harvest will send workers into the harvest. So that's the first thing. Uh, We are dealing not with an objective thing. We're not harvesting wheat, but rather the harvest is the souls that God wants to be in union with him. They are, by definition, not objects. They are persons. They are subjects. And so it takes a very different way to harvest, right? Not mechanized, not, uh, not streamlined, but slow and inefficient, person to person to person, walking through the field together. The second thing he says is carry no money bag, no sack, no sandals. And this one's interesting to me because here are people who have resources, right? Uh, And he's saying, don't take your own resources with you. God wants us to rely on the things that he provides for us and not to be relying on the things that we have. If we're relying on our own resources, then when they start to get slim, we get a little bit nervous and then we start to behave differently. He wants us to go out fully relying in his provision. And lastly, he wants us to offer peace and to proclaim the kingdom. That's what we have to do. That's our task as part of this this group of 72, is to go out and get our hands dirty, to trust in the provision of God, to offer Christ's peace, and to proclaim the coming kingdom. Our reading from church history today comes from the rule of St. Benedict. Whenever you begin any good work, you should first of all make a most pressing appeal to Christ our Lord to bring it to perfection, that he who has honored us by counting us among his children may never be grieved by our evil deeds. For we must always serve him with the good things he has given us in such a way that he may never, as an angry father disinherits his sons, or even like a master who inspires fear, grow impatient with our sins and consign us to everlasting punishment. 
like the wicked servants who would not follow him to glory. So we should at long last rouse ourselves, prompted by the words of Scripture, Now is the time for us to rise from sleep. Our eyes should be open to the God-given light, and we should listen in wonderment to the message of the divine voice as it daily cries out, Today, if you shall hear his voice, harden not your hearts. And again, if anyone has ears to hear, let him listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And what does the Spirit say? Come, my sons, listen to me, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Hurry, while you have the light of life, so that death's darkness may not overtake you. And the Lord, as he seeks the one who will do his work among the throng of people to whom he makes a good appeal, says again, Which of you wants to live life to the full? Who loves long life and the enjoyment of prosperity? And if when you hear this you say, I do, God says to you, If you desire true and everlasting life, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And when you have done these things, my eyes will be upon you. And before you call upon my name, I shall say to you, Behold, I am here. What could be more delightful, dearest brothers, than the voice of our Lord's invitation to us? In his loving kindness, he reveals to us the way of life. And so girded with faith and the performance of good works, let us follow in his paths by the guidance of the gospel. Then we shall deserve to see him who has called us into his kingdom. If we wish to attain a dwelling place in his kingdom, we shall not reach it unless we hasten there by our good deeds. Just as there exists an evil fervor, a bitter spirit which divides us from God and leads us to hell, so there is a good fervor which sets us apart from evil inclinations and leads us toward God and eternal life. Monks should put this fervor into practice with an overflowing love. That is, they should surpass each other in mutual esteem, accept their weaknesses, either of body or behavior, with the utmost patience, and vie with each other in acceding to requests. No one should follow what he considers to be good for himself, but rather what seems good for another. They should display brotherly love in a chaste manner, fear God in a spirit of love, revere their abbot with a genuine and submissive affection, let them put Christ before all else, and may he lead us to everlasting life. That reading comes from the rule of St. Benedict. And you know, the rule plays a big part in our lives as a family. Um, we, at dinner time, we read a section of the rule each night. And it's amazing how much of the rule of St. Benedict is applicable to our daily lives, we who live outside the monastery. And this dovetails right into the reading that we heard in Scripture Uh, where Christ sent his people out and said, okay, here are the four things. Pray for workers, rely on the resources that I give, offer peace, and proclaim the kingdom. And to that, I think St. Benedict would add one thing, and that is put the needs of others first. Consider the other person first, and those things will flow out of your life of humility. That's all the time we have for today. 
Today's show is brought to you by Lillian Vogel and all of those who support the show through Patreon. You can join their numbers by going to OutsideTheWalls.com, clicking that Patreon link, and joining that community of supporters. Come be a part of the conversation on social media, Facebook.com slash StepOutsideTheWalls. On Twitter, the handle's at OutsideTheWalls. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.